Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn, and I'm a WCT certified educator, and in this podcast, I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties, and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. Mary Jones of Meritus Winery here in Sonoma. I'm recording this online, even though we're not that far apart because you're just north of Petaluma. Um, can you just introduce yourself and your winery, Emeritus? Yeah, so I'm Mari Jones. I'm the president of Emeritus Vineyards. Um, my father started the company in 1999 when he purchased Halber Branch, uh, which is now our, vine- our, our largest vineyard in um, Sebastopol in Russian River Valley. My father retired about six years ago and I've taken over running the company from him. Emeritus is only Pinot Noir. Then. That's correct. So we are 100% Pinot Noir and 100% estate grown. We actually sell most of our fruit to other wineries, so we're only making a relatively small amount of our grapes. What is the production of Emeritus in terms of cases? We do about 10,000 cases a year. The focus of this interview is going to be on dry farming and irrigation, oh, not using irrigation, but just to start with the fact that you sell a lot of fruit, what are kind of the economic dynamics of selling fruit <laughs> rather than making wine from the fruit? Uh, you get paid in the same year, so that's <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, less overhead top because you're not running a winery. So those are the kind of economic considerations. Um, of course, you are still farmers, so you are subject to the whims of agriculture and mother nature and um, the market. We're very lucky, though, to have built uh, really strong relationships with the wineries that we work with. So making they stake their brand on Halberg Branch and the quality of our fruit and kind of vice versa, right? So it's... Um, really strong partnerships that we've been able to build over the last close to 20 years. 1999 was the first vintage or when Emeritus started making wine. That's, yeah, that's when the company started. We actually didn't plant anything until 2000. We purchased all our branches and apple orchard. So our first 30 acres were planted in 2000. Uh, the last plantings were in 2002 at this property. And we purchased another property um, and planted that in 2008, which we call Pinot Hill. And that's in Southern Sebastopol. So uh, our first vintage was 2004 that we actually made wine commercially. Uh, However, that burned in a warehouse fire, the Mare Island fire, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And so our first release into the world was really the 2005 vintage. And what was the prompt to move from solely selling fruit to actually making wine? Uh, We always did a little bit of both. Um, So that was part of the plan from the beginning. Because the vineyards were planted until 2000, we really didn't have a a good crop to make a commercial vintage until 2000. When was the conversion to dry farming and not using irrigation? And how did that work practically? Yeah, so we started the process of weaning the vines off of irrigation in 2007. So it actually took four vintages at Hallberg Ranch, 7, 8, 9, and 10, were the four kind of weaning transition vintages. Uh, it was a conversation that my dad had with um, his former partner, Robert de Valen. They developed a vineyard together in uh, Annapolis, very, way far up on the Sonoma Coast. And it was a conversation when Bryce was actually buying him out of that project that spurred this transformation of our vineyard so he came back and he talked to Kirk and he said what do you think about doing this 
And Kirk said, well, we can try. This property actually before it was an orchard, it was a vineyard. Uh, Oscar Hallberg purchased this property. The records are a little unclear, but it seems like maybe the late 1890s, maybe the very early 1900s. And he purchased it as a vineyard, developed it, or continued to grow grapes and, and develop his agriculture that way. But when Prohibition was enacted, he, like everybody else, uh, transitioned his vineyard to apples. And he also was already growing a lot of apples at the time and other, other parcels and properties. So if it was a vineyard prior to Prohibition, they didn't have mechanical irrigation like we do today. So there was kind of the thought of like, yeah, I mean, it could probably be done because it was most likely done in the past. So there's something about this property that allows for it, which not everywhere in our area, or California certainly, would allow for. So that weaning process was, like I said, about four years, and it was really trying to get the roots really deep down into the sub layer of the subsoils, basically. We have Goldridge soil on top, which is very prized and sought after for Pinot Noir, super well-draining. It's so fine. It's like moon dust. It, it's just like finer than dirt. And so that really captures all the water. It drains really quickly, and then it kind of pushes all the water into the subsoil, which is a sandy clay low. So we needed to get the roots growing into that clay because that's where water is retained. And so it took about four years to basically train them to get their roots deep in, deep enough into that soil to actually be able to sustain themselves throughout the summer where there's no rain. And how do you train the roots to um, go in the direction you want them to? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, uh, they'll, go, they'll follow the path of least resistance, basically. They're like humans, not going to work too much harder than they have to, right? There is that kind of intersection of the, where the soil shifts. And you can actually see if you dig a soil pit, you can actually see a lot of roots growing uh, horizontally across that intersection uh, because that's where water would sit while it gets absorbed by the clay, right? Especially when you're using irrigation. So we basically had to pull back the number of irrigation cycles that we were using and make sure that the vines were really forced to go into that clay. But we actually use more water per irrigation cycle to try to create a deeper water column so that the vines can find that water and follow the path of that water. And uh, when I visited the property a couple of months ago, you had specific training systems, I think, for the vines. And how is, how is that connected to um, not using irrigation? So we actually planted with irrigation, right? So that was that transition period. We do have a number of different um, training systems used in the vineyard. Uh, it's actually less to do with irrigation usage and more to do with adapting for clone and site specificity. So if there's more vigor or less vigor, if there's an area where just like something isn't growing very well, you know, do we put two canes or one? Do we do double, guio, cordon? So there's a lot of different variations of those things that we've played around with to try to make sure that every clone, every block, every every part of the vineyard is really producing the best quality fruit that it can. Right, and so you have lots of different clones of Pinot Noir. Can you talk about some of the differences in how they grow and the type of fruit and wine that they produce? Oh yeah, so we have, um, uh, it's hard to give an exact number because, but somewhere in the realm of 13 to 14 clones. We have two versions of 828, so that's like 
one and a half. Um, we have two Pomard, we have four and five, so that's also like one and a half. So put all together, it's about 13, um, including a couple suitcase clones. We have multiple clones um, planted in multiple places on the property. Halberg Ranch is about 110 acres, so it's relatively large. They all have very different morphologies. You know, they all look really different. If you look at a clone, we have this one called Elite. Uh, that was a suitcase clone from Romney Conti. And if you look at that, it has these little shoulders or wings on it. And that looks completely different than 828, which is a bigger, you know, kind of what you would think of as a group cluster. Um, versus if you think of maybe Hive, which is this tiny little pine cone, or Swan, which never seems to get big at all. But that's a newer clone for us, so we, we don't have as much experience with it. There is a lot of variation um, and then, of course, a lot of different variations and flavors. So if you think about like a 667 or a 777, they're, they're definitely like mid-palate, bolder, richer style of wine. If you think about 115, it's definitely more delicate. But then also where you grow it matters. So if you grow 115 in an area that we call the beach because um, it's really deep, gold-rich soil, that's going to have a different profile than if you grow it across, um, across the vineyard where it's... a much shallower sand layer. So the wines change, clone matters, site matters. People will argue that only one of those makes a difference. And I would say that the truth lies in the middle <laughs> as it often does. But we do make some single clone wines that highlight a single block and a single clone. You know, we have an, the Elite, that Romney Conti suitcase selection we have as its own standalone wine actually from both of our vineyards. And there is a thread of similarity between the two, um, but also great differences based on where they're grown. Do you have any fun stories you can share about the suitcase clones um, and how they came into California? <laughs> sure, so Kirk, our vineyard manager, um, was on a trip to Burgundy with my dad, Bryce, uh, in, gosh, sometime in the mid 90s. Kirk had been, wanting to experiment with Pinot Noir for a while. He had planted some test blocks unbeknownst to Bryce at Sonoma Couture where they were at the time. And they went to Burgundy, they were there. Kirk decided to jump over the wall in the middle of the night, um, almost broke his leg in the drainage ditch. So he decided that it would be a lot better and smarter if he went on Sunday morning when everybody's at church. So Sunday morning, he drove his car up and down the route to Grand Cru and took cuttings from every Grand Cru vineyard. Uh, he then met Bryce at the hotel. They sealed the, they soaked him in water, sealed the ends with um, candles that Bryce purchased at a local shop. And Kirk wrapped him up in his socks and everything and shoved him in a suitcase and, and went home. He got stopped in the Detroit airport, which is where his connection was. And... They said, oh, you have dirt on your boots. She can't, you don't want to bring dirt in. So they said, okay. So he gets pushed to the side to do secondary screening or, you know, whatever it was called. And, you know, he cleans off his boots. They start going through his suitcase and they didn't find anything. And he knows that the next suitcase they're going to go through actually has these. And he doesn't want them to do that, of course. And so he, you know, kind of grumbles and says, oh, I'm going to miss my flight and I got the dirt off my boots. Can I please go? And somebody was distracted, didn't quite notice that they hadn't switched to second suitcase. So they were, they ushered him out and he was actually able to bring them in, which was um, quite the feat. 
going through U.S. immigration always stresses me out, so I can't imagine uh, <laughs> trying to smuggle some grapes in. Um, do you find any particular differences between those cuttings from Burgundy and those that have been developed um, here in California? Um, it's a great question. I think there. So what we did, what Kirk did, is he started growing all of those different um, cuttings, and he probably had over fifteen. And you know, some of them just didn't work very well. So he basically got it down to two that he liked, that the winemaker liked, that really felt like they could do something. And um, so we call one Cruz um, in, in honor of Kirk, Cruz Especial. Kirk's nickname is Don Cruz. So Cruz for Kirk and then Elite from Romney Conti. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, every Pinot Noir started in Burgundy, right? No matter if it's a California Heritage clone or if it's, you know, a, a numbered clone from Dijon or whatever it might be. I think that those, the reason that we honed in on those two clones over kind of years of growing and why we continue to plant them, make wine from them, um, you know, special, you know, selections from them as well is because they are really special and unique. That said, we also do that with a couple of other clones. So I think part of it is that they do bring something special, but there were other clones that we brought from France didn't, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So kind of by process of elimination got to these really unique ones that we really like. So that's one of the fascinating things about Pinot Noir, isn't it? That you have all these different clones which produce subtly different expressions. So it's interesting that you've, the winery has worked for a long time quite hard to kind of isolate which clones work in um, Sonoma uh, compared to others. Yeah, absolutely. And just also for our land and every block and every clone. In, in 2020, we grafted in some new clones and also um, grafted some existing clones over some, you know, clones that we just didn't really like or that weren't performing very well. So the elite, we actually put in more of um, because it was just, we really liked it. It was very popular. Um, but we also put in more 828 and some other things. So it's just kind of a little bit of a changeover after, you know, 20 years of a vineyard, getting to know it and seeing really where shining stars are, understanding every block you know, individually, I think is really important to what we do. Lots of focus on the land, the soil, the great varieties, the clones for the style of wine. Returning to um, dry farming, what were the challenges of establishing vines without using, or using irrigation at first, but then withdrawing the irrigation? Yeah, I mean, those four years, um, the yields went down a lot. <laughs> so the vines were putting a lot of energy into growing their roots, uh, but it was also kind of Coincidental that we had a big frost year one year, so that kind of limited what the vines could do anyway for growing fruit. So they had kind of some extra energy to put into growing their roots. Um, we had some other weather and climate related things that made that transition a little bit easier. I mean, I think the biggest challenge was lower yield. If you're kind of cutting off the water in some way, you're just limiting what the vine can do. What we have found since though, is that we have really consistent yields even in drought years. So the vines are able to, now that they're kind of, they have that that support system, that, that deep root structure, they're actually able to thrive in adverse conditions. Whereas in that weaning process, or even with irrigation, they're just, you're so much more at the mercy, I think of, of mother nature. And now it's like, I, I think of it as, 
you know, like people, right? Um, if you have a, a deep support system, if you have a strong character, you can kind of weather life's, you know, events and hardships that get thrown at you. I think it's the same for a vine. Not to say that there isn't vintage variation or, or changes in the vine, but they're better adapted and suited to handle those things, whether it's drought or heat. I mean, those are the big things that we kind of contend with. So what we're seeing is actually, while it was really challenging those four years, we're seeing so many benefits on the other side. So it's been, what, 15, 16 years since this conversion. And so you've found these long-term benefits that the vines are actually more stable and more adaptable to what are going to be increasingly difficult uh, climate conditions. Which do you see more of a challenge, um, heat or drought? Depends on the year. This year, we don't have either. I, you know, I don't know. It's a good question. I think with the heat, it's going to be unpredictable. I don't, I don't see a whole lot of changes maybe on like the average. And there, I know that there are some climate models that actually show Russian River and our, our areas of the Russian River having more fog cover as it heats up more inland. There'd actually be more fog pulled in. That's so possible that we'll experience in general more fog cover, a little bit cooler, more moderating effect of the fog. Uh, but that said, I think what we're really seeing from heat events is these really big heat spikes. They tend to come at Labor Day and it seems to go on three to five days. So, and we're talking extreme heat, you know, triple digits, maybe even over 110, which is ridiculous <laughs> for us. And relatively cool climate and cool region to have those kind of heat spikes. So I think for heat, the challenge is unpredictability. For drought, uh, I think it's almost the same. It's I think it's unpredictable. You might have a stretch of 10 years of drought like we've basically seen, but you also may then have these big years of rain like we've had this year. I think both can be a big challenge. I think our vines are well suited to kind of handle either. And our soil can hold that water for a really long time and capture pretty much everything that rains. Even in a year like this past winter where, you know, everything is flooded and the Laguna is basically coming onto the road. The Laguna de Santa Rosa, for reference, is about a mile from us, um, not even. And so, you know, you have a super high water table there, not like here, but it's... There's just so much water everywhere. Water, sitting water, nothing is draining. And for us, in the biggest weeks of rain, we would have a little bit of standing water uh, in our in the bottom of the hill, in some in some ravines, and that's about it. So our soil can really capture and hold on to that water. So I, I think probably heat would be a bigger challenge overall, but I think it'll be really uncomfortable. That's a very long drawn out answer too. Yep. <laughs> relatively simple question. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to other um, growers and winemakers, and they feel that heat is more of an issue than drought because once you have the vines and their roots established in the soil and you have the appropriate soil, then they can handle the water pressure or the lack of water. Yeah. Whereas heat is something that is maybe a little, and it's those heat spikes that you mentioned in September that some growers are really concerned about because that just changes the ripening pattern and when to pick and can lead to over-ripeness just within two or three days. So. Yeah, it really can. It's it's really, 
interesting to watch it. And I think one of the, the hardest parts about those heat waves is that it doesn't cool down at night like we usually see. So the acids just fire out really quickly or they can't. What we do see from dry farming though is we're picking earlier in the season. We're finding that we have full phenolic development at lower sugars. And what happens is when you're irrigating, you the, the vines actually stall their phenolic development in between irrigation cycles but sugar accumulation continues. So you actually don't get your phenolic development until a higher sugar. And if you're looking at bricks as a measure or acid as a measure of when to pick, you might be waiting longer. For us, we're looking at phenolics and of course bricks matters, but it's not the only thing. So we look at phenolics and acid and we're wanting to get grapes when they're every block, every clone, when they're kind of exhibiting their most uniqueness that they could ever exhibit. And that tends to be between, you know, 21 to 23 bricks. Some some have to go higher, some can go lower. So, but what we're finding is we get those phenolics ripening in tandem with sugar. So we're getting to, we're getting the full flavor spectrum of every clone, every block earlier, which allows us to pick earlier, which allows us to be mostly done or halfway done or all the way done before a heat spike in September, or like this year, when we might be picking into October, potentially to avoid rains in October, we'd be done a little bit earlier. That was the case in 2011. We were able to have every, the last pick was already scheduled for the day before the rain was forecasted, whereas a lot of people were still scrambling to get their fruit in before rot set in after this big rain in October. And so for the listener who isn't based in California, can you describe yes. 2023 and the weather conditions? Because it feels like a very yeah. unusual year, but maybe you can compare it to others. Yes. No, it is. Um, we were talking this morning, Kirker Vineyard Manager has been doing this for over 40 years at this point. And um, the latest version he has ever seen was, or it was July 28th. <laughs> Today is July 26th. We have not seen a hint of pink on any in the vineyard. So... Um, in 40 years, this is pretty much the latest version that, that has happened. What we saw was a lot of rain coming over the winter, 2022 to 2023. So the ground was really cold already, a very cold, very wet year. Uh, and then in the spring, we just like really didn't see any sun or really warm temperatures. So we had really thick fog cover, a lot of cloudy days. It seemed like June gloom lasted for like three and a half months. <laughs> And so the ground took a long time to warm up. So bud burst was late. And then it was just, it stayed cloudy and cold. So bloom was more like six weeks long instead of three. Uh, And now we're into July, we have set, berries are sizing up, uh, but no sign of variation yet for us in in kind of Western So. Things are looking to be two to three weeks behind what we have seen in the past, call it 10 years, which is interesting and definitely makes you worry a little bit. Are we gonna have a heat spike in September? Are we gonna have rains come in October? What, you know, what kind of weather event could be thrown at us to, you know, throw a wrench and everything? Too early to tell, but (laughs) we'll see. All you can do is watch and wait, I guess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and for those who are not based here but may have some knowledge, this feels more like a 2011 vintage, 
which was marked by really cold, late ripening, and then early rains in October. So it does show that California does have vintage variation and that weather can definitely change from year to year. (laughs) We do, every once in a while. I'd like to talk about plantings of other, not just grapes, but you have other flowers and plants on the property. Can you talk about a bit about those and how they contribute to the whole growing cycle and system? Like I said, when we purchased property, it was an apple orchard. There was also a block of peaches. We have a road called Peachland Avenue that that coasts the vineyard, and we're on the Gravenstein Highway. So we have Gravenstein apple trees that line Gravenstein Highway. We have peach trees that line Peachland Avenue. Uh, Very appropriate. And then we also scatter a whole lot of wildflowers uh, to create insectiaries. So we have two areas of the vineyard where we throw this wildflower mix, and that rings in a lot of beneficial bugs and insects. It's really interesting. We see a better fruit set in those areas with the insectary. There's really no reason why that would be. You don't, I mean, that would come naturally other than with a really healthy ecosystem around it, you can eliminate some of those bad pests. Uh, we also have um, some large trees on the property. We have some redwoods and some big oaks and those house some predators. We have raptors and owls, owl boxes as well. We also planted a number of manzanitas, which are indigenous California plant, which sequesters a whole lot of carbon around it. So we're trying to, with those bigger trees, with our vines, and with a lot of our farming practices, as well as filling in some of these areas of the vineyard that aren't vines, with things like manzanitas, or uh, sticky monkey brush is another fun one actually sequester more carbon so that we're off-putting what we emit as we farm. When I visited um, your property, you talked about carbon sequestration. Can you delve into that a little um, a little more? Yeah, there's a lot of parts of it. So if there's anything that, you know, you want me to elaborate on, let me know. But, you know, we are trying to be carbon negative farmers and we're actually now certified as carbon negative at both of our properties. So we do that with the Accomplish that kind of with a series of um, farming practices as well as things like planting those manzanitas and keeping those large trees on the property. But practices like no-till or half-till every other row um, promotes carbon sequestration. You know, basically as few tractor passes as you can take helps, right? And by not tilling, you're not kind of leaching carbon out of the soil. We do till some every other row at Halberg to control our gopher population, which is a workplace safety hazard. Um, If you've ever stepped in a gopher hole, you would understand. But between that, composting, keeping all these other plants around, we're really trying to do our best to sequester as much carbon as possible. Tilling is something that kind of divides opinion. Some people say you have to till because of erosion and to keep the soil alive and fresh, but then the counter argument is that it releases carbon into the air. So you, you kind of till, but very uh, in a measured way. Is that, is that how you describe it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the we're in the camp of, we would love to go all no-till. We have areas of Halberg Ranch and the entirety of Pino Hill where we do not till at all. We find that not tilling is better for erosion, better for creating a habitat because we leave and just allow to grow native natural grasses and what you call weeds in your garden. But we let that grow as our cover crop. So we actually just leave that and we'd love to just leave all of that in. But we do have to till in large portions of Halberg Ranch every other row 
and that is truly just to try to break up gopher runs so we don't have injuries basically um, from our crew working in the vineyard. With cover crops in relation to water, I mean do you have the same cover crops each year or do you vary according to how much water there is available? Whatever grows grows is our philosophy. So. Um, we have experimented back when we started planting, we experimented with some different cover crops and everything was kind of too vigorous and was growing too tall. So we figured that whatever is growing is what's meant to grow in general. And that has been really beneficial for us, creating good habitat for all sorts of natural predators and insects and just kind of a healthy ecosystem all around. One final question. Um, you've released a sparkling wine. Can you just talk about how that is farmed differently from the red wine from Pinot Noir? It's actually, it is a single block. So it's a, it's, and it's a true like grower sparkling wine, right? It is not really farmed all that differently, to be honest. It The big difference is pick time. So we're picking that closer to 19 bricks, whereas otherwise we're picking, you know, around 20, 21, 22, 20 would be very low. So uh, so it's really just pick time, and then of course how it's made is quite different than than any of our red wines. And has that been a challenge, or has it just been exciting to make some sparkling wine? It's been exciting. So our first vintage was 2020, and we uh, just had that disgorged and released this year. And I had been wanting to make a sparkling wine for a very, very, very long time, because I've always loved Blanc de Noirs, and of course, who doesn't love drinking champagne and sparkling wine from around the world? So. When I told my dad it was something I wanted to do, he always said no. <laughs> and as soon as he retired, <laughs> we decided that we were going to do it because we all wanted it. So it's been really fun. I think it's really delicious. I think what we really wanted to do is strike a balance between freshness and aging. Um, and I think that we did a great job of um, through the tirage process and disgorging. So very proud of it. Good. I mean, who doesn't want sparkling wine from Pinot Noir? It's... Exactly. Apart from your dad. <laughs> <laughs> he wants it. He just didn't want to be the one to oh, make it. <laughs> that's fair. I'm the same, I guess. I, I buy my sparkling wine. I don't make it. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's been really interesting. Good overview of um, growing conditions in Russian River Valley and not reliant on irrigation. It's unfortunately, I think too many producers in California are. And given that California does have water shortages, maybe not this year, but in general, I think it's pretty important in the long term to have vines that are trained to not rely on water. And that is reflected in the, in the wines as well, I think, having tried them. So thank you, Mary, for joining me. And I hope that's educated the listeners about um, some of the farming practices that you um, use in Russian River Valley. Well, thank you. It's been really nice to chat with you and to see you again.